Welcome to Sacred Heart's podcast series, The Heart of Sharon Road. This is Anne-Marie Turpak, Sacred Heart School's Executive Director of Institutional Advancement and your host for this episode of The Heart of Sheridan Road. Today we welcome Liz Rupking, the founder of Cyber Safety Consulting and Senior Safety Expert. Liz was inspired to found Cyber Safety after becoming acutely aware of the dangers of technology affecting her three children. Her purpose in creating Cyber Safety Consulting is to educate parents, children, and school educators on the safe, savvy, and ethical use of the digital world. Liz is also the founder of the CASE program, Cyber Awareness and Safety Education, which is implemented in middle schools nationwide. Liz has been seen on WGN News, Fox Morning Show, NBC News, and has contributed to many national news outlets and articles. Welcome to Sacred Heart Schools and to the Heart of Sheridan Road podcast, Liz. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sure. We're lucky that you're somewhat in our own backyard as well. You're in Glen Ellen, Illinois. You travel all over the country, but at least this morning was a little easier commute for you than it was. Um, heading to California at 1.15. Yep, only a car needed. Yeah. No plane. So Liz, you are spending the day at Sacred Heart Schools offering two presentations to parents and two presentations to our fourth through eighth grade students. Can you share with our audience key highlights from your student presentation regarding internet safety, including devices, software, websites, and applications they are using, both in school and at home, and specifically touch upon cultural implications and the potential harms that come with internet usage? So my overall goal with the students when I speak to them is to take some of these abstract concepts and give them some concrete examples and stories. And I'm really talking to them about a couple different aspects. One is building their awareness around the fact that anyone can be anyone they want online. Kids tend to work in very concrete areas of their brain. And when someone tells them that they are 14 years old and live in the neighborhood, they believe that. And what they need to realize is that they are working, when they're online, they're working without the use of their visual and auditory cues to help them navigate their way. And they have to find ways to use their brain more than their senses when they're online. And so building their awareness that anyone can be anyone they want is done by telling them stories and giving them examples that they find interesting and relatable. Another one of the key areas I talk about with the kids is permanency of what they're doing online. They struggle to understand, again, because it's abstract in nature, that what they put online has a life far beyond what they intend. It also has an audience far beyond what they intend it to be. Um, So there's depth to what they're doing, but they just don't realize it. Another one of those concepts that I talk about in a similar way is privacy. Kids feel that they, if they're only interacting with someone else online, that they have privacy, that that is similar to having a face-to-face conversation. And once they put something online, whether it's a picture, a text, a comment, it is completely and totally out of their control as to what happens to that and the life that that leads. Um, And then along with those same concepts is the idea that they are continually creating a story about themselves. Everything they do online is a reflection of who they are and what they say they are. So again, I want them to have awareness that there's permanency to it, there's no privacy, and they're creating their own story. They need their story to be accurate as to who they are. 
um, appropriate and also create an image that they're proud of. And then the, the last thing I like to talk to the students about is passwords. So very practical, very hands-on. Um, I want them to understand that passwords are truly a key to their, it's like a key to their house. You do not go out and give the key to your house to anyone you want. When you go in your house and you lock the door, you have a feeling of safety and protection and passwords provide that same safety and protection. So we talk about that as a conceptual level and then at a practical level, we talk about how to create a good solid password to do things, to create passwords that don't use their first or their last name, their phone number, their dog's name, their brother's name, their birth date. The easier a password is to guess, I'm sorry, the easier it is to remember, the easier it is for someone else to guess. So they want to make unique, strong passwords. And then the third component to this, which is often the most violated by students, is they cannot share their passwords with anyone other than their parents. For a lot of kids, sharing passwords is an indication of their level of their friendship. If someone is my best friend, I can share my password with them because you're my best friend. And what kids don't see or have an experience that many of us have experienced is that our friendships change over time. And those friendships change, but the passwords may not. And now someone has access to your very personal, private information and can damage your reputation um, and see information and take information from you that will hurt you in the long run. So those are, those are the primary concepts that I try and cover with the students. What about highlights from your parent presentation regarding helping keep children safe when using technology? For example, how are today's children interacting online, the positive and negative implications of technology, and how we can parent with more understanding about culture of technology for our families? So my biggest goal with parents is to give them the tools, the knowledge, and the confidence to start a conversation with their children about technology that becomes ongoing. One of the keys to that conversation is being able to create an environment where students feel safe, where their children feel safe and non-threatened to talk about what the challenges are they face online. So that's the sort of the overall objective of it. And then you ask about how the kids are acting, interacting online and what they're using and the positive and negative implications of technology. And I think all of that is important to build the parents' knowledge. The parents have to have a certain knowledge level in order to create that conversation. They have to be credible. They have to understand what the challenges kids face are and be able to mentor their kids through this, give them examples, role model, um, that's, that's another really important piece of this, is that parents have to understand how the technology works so that they can be the role model to their students. What do you think is the greatest danger facing children in using the internet? I really think there's two dangers. They're, they're a little bit different in, in nature. I think their immediate danger is the fact that um, they are so accessible to predators online. Um, Predators like to go where kids are and where parents aren't. And there's a lot of places online where kids hang out and parents are unaware. Um, with the absence of visual and auditory cues, it's made a predator's world considerably easier. Mm -hmm. A predator's goal is to find a way to connect with a child first. And once they make that connection, it's to build a relationship that keys on trust. We call that grooming. They build a relationship. They build trust. When they feel confident in that trust, 
they ask a child to give them something. It might be a piece of information, but most often it's a picture. That picture, that piece of information then provides power for the predator to be able to start pushing the child to meet them, to provide more information, to provide more pictures. In the real world, we call it extortion. In the online world, we'll call it sextortion. So that to me is the most imminent danger kids face day to day. From a long-term perspective, kids face a lot of challenges with their online reputation and what they, just the permanency. You know, a, a sixth grader, seventh grader really doesn't think beyond their immediate future. They struggle to understand that their audience is far more than the 150 followers they might have on Instagram and realize that the picture that they put out there or that picture that they share with someone who they consider a close friend or a boyfriend has a life that is permanent, is indefinite. So I think as we move on through the years, we're going to see more and more ramifications of people who have posted things at an early age coming back and being a reflection of their characters and their, their moral character. While that might not be fair or accurate, it's just the nature of the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, what people do online, it may not totally reflect who they are, but what it does is it brings into question who they are. And we have examples of that. You shared earlier in the parent presentation about rescinding college offers because... Yeah, I mean, one a re- another really good story is um, about a young man who went to the Parkland High School that had the mass shooting two years ago. Mm-hmm. He was, I believe, a junior at the time of the shooting. And shortly after the shooting, he became a tremendously strong advocate of school safety. He was in favor of the Second Amendment and gun, gun control but he did advocate very hard for stronger school safety measures. He actually had a one-on-one sit-down meeting with President Trump at the time, and regardless of your views politically, for a 17-year-old young man Mm -hmm. to sit down with the President of the United States is pretty impressive. He went on to apply to Harvard. In his essays, he wrote about how the shootings affected him and how he went on to become an advocate for school safety and he got into Harvard. And after he was admitted to Harvard, months later, he received a letter saying his offer was rescinded because of tweets that he had sent about six months prior to the shooting when he was a sophomore in high school. He wrote a very long and intelligent letter back to Harvard explaining that yes, he did send those tweets, but he was a very different person. Mm -hmm. And isn't it reasonable to assume that someone can change over time and that these events of his life deeply affected him and that's not the person he was. Yeah. And Harvard said, we realize that and we understand that. And yes, you certainly can change, but you're not coming to Harvard because there's plenty of other students that didn't make those mistakes. Wow. So we, we there's other questions too from a, a moral perspective is, is there forgiveness online? Mm-hmm. How much are you held accountable to what you do? Yeah. I mean, those are questions we're all going to have to face as we move on. Right. So how do parents break open this conversation with their children to allow them to learn about potential ramifications? I mean, our students are young, developing, you know, we have goals and criteria by which Sacred Heart schools live by, and goal five is... um, really about making wise choices and the children's use of those words. And really, 
we allow them the space to make wrong choices and learn from them. So how does a parent in this big realm of things that are really beyond our knowing, you would share that your kids, as much as you know, and you're an expert at this, your kids can run circles around you about Mm -hmm. the use of the internet and safety and technology. So how do they even begin this conversation with their child? The first step they need to take is building their knowledge Mm -hmm. and their education on it. And then they need to find, depending on the age of their child, find the right language to, to talk to them. So if your child's a second grader, you want to find the right content and the right language to use so that you're not scaring them, but you're building a foundation. If you are talking to a seventh and eighth grader, the language is going to be a little bit different. The content's going to be a little bit different. The situations they're facing are going to be a little bit different. I think you brought up a good point. Um, part of growing up and probably the best way to learn, unfortunately, is through making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you make a mistake, you, you learn what worked and what didn't work, and we put that in our brain. One of the struggles for kids is that I, I often refer to the brain as a database. So I'm 51 years old. I have 51 years of entries into my database. And when I run into a problem my brain automatically sort of rifles through that database and finds similar situations and I go through this process of, did this happen to me before? What worked? What didn't work? What were the lessons learned? And that's what we call experience. In the digital world, we all have fairly limited experiences, but now when you bring that down to a 11, 12, 13 year old, they have no experiences. So they have no database to pull from. Um, they, we've already talked about the fact that they have no visual and auditory cues when they're online, so they're going to make mistakes. So one part of me says what, what parents want to keep a lot of the technology away. One of the advantages of opening up technology to kids is, is allowing them to make some mistakes when they're still looking to us as parents mm-hmm. for answers and guidance. If you deny, 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 What's going to happen is that they're going to they're going to go on behind our backs and be exposed to things, and, and we're not going to be there. We're not going to even know that they're they're doing things to have that opportunity to teach and educate them. And related to this, you had shared that sexting is really one of the largest problems that are facing middle schools. Can you speak to that for our parent audience about sexting? You will be speaking with students today, but you won't be um, broaching this topic with them. But what do parents need to know about this and their responsibility if their child is engaging in it as well? Yeah, sexting seems to be the most common challenge that schools are facing. Um, I think some of us would think it would be cyberbullying, but it's really the sharing of inappropriate images, which at the end of the day is another form of cyberbullying. There's a couple conflicts happening. For students, sharing of or even taking inappropriate images is part of their cultural norms. Uh, when, when we talk to students about sexting, they want to bring in concepts like permission. She knows I have the picture. She gave me the picture. She's okay that I have the picture. They want to bring in another topic like relationships. Well, I'm in a relationship with her, or I'm in a relationship with him, and that's why I sent him the picture. So culturally, the challenge is that it's part of their social norms, and it's there's a lot of peer pressure to provide pictures. Um, it's part of dating. It's part of relationships. The way I address it with students is that 
when we talk about sexting, it's almost like there's some soft edges to it because there's gray area because of relationships and social norms and permission. When I talk to them, I tell them that if you have an image of someone under the age of 18 and they are nude or semi-nude, you are in possession of, and all the children will say, child pornography. There is a visual difference in an assembly when we move the, the language from sexting to child pornography. Mm-hmm. Remember, when we're talking about sexting, they're comfortable with the idea of sexting. So they're more relaxed. When I tell them that when you have an image of someone who's under the age of 18 and they're nude or semi-nude, you are in possession of child pornography, there's almost a more rigid approach to the students because they know that child pornography is illegal. I don't want to get into a discussion. I will never win a discussion with students about relationships, about permission, about social norms. I can tell them all day that those social norms are wrong and I will come off as an out of touch adult that doesn't have a clue. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I want them to understand is the legal side of it. Oftentimes I work with schools as a restorative justice program. So maybe they had 10 kids that got caught sexting and they will ask me to come in and present to them or do a workshop with the students. And once I'm with them for a while and build their trust and, and have a relationship, I'll look at the kids and I'll say, so what were you thinking when you did this? And every time they'll look at me and they'll say, Mrs. Rep King, we knew it was wrong. We knew it was bad. We shouldn't have done it. But we never knew we'd get in so much trouble. We never knew we'd get suspended. We never knew the police would get involved. Mm. And I ask them, do you get it now? Yeah, we, we just didn't realize that it was illegal. So that's, a, that's an easier way to talk to them black and white Mm -hmm. about why it's a problem. I will also talk to them and tell them, look, we've just spent a lot of time talking about someone's online reputation, about the permanency of what you do, the lack of privacy. We've talked about all those topics. So forget about the legal implications. When you share this picture of someone, that's their their reputation. Mm -hmm. That picture's not going away. So there's those conceptual ideas as well. I think it's also really important to give kids some solutions to the problem. So think about it this way. Um, I'm a, an eighth grader and I've done nothing wrong and I come home from school and I open up my phone and I have a text from one of my best friends of a girl with her top off. I ask kids, what do you do? I delete it. You delete it. That's all you do. I delete it. Okay, so when I told you the definition of sexting, I said that If you have an image of someone who's under the age of 18, you are in possession of child pornography. So technically you are in possession. I didn't say if you deleted it, you weren't in possession. If you you had to keep it for an hour, once you have it, once you've received it, you've received child pornography. So the bigger question, so we we can generate a discussion and when when you can get kids debating, it means that they're processing in their brain. And that's all I'm trying to do is get them to process. And they'll say, but that's not fair. I didn't ask for it. I deleted it. Why should I get in trouble for this? And I said, well, what do you think the right thing to do is? Delete it. I said, well, think about it. If that picture goes to three people, and then those three people send that picture to 10 more, and then those 10 more people send it to 10 more, it just keeps going. So really the the solution, what you need to do legally when you get that picture is actually not delete it. Go to a person in a position of responsibility and give them 
your device and say, I received an inappropriate picture. Because really what you want to do is stop that picture from moving and multiplying out. So if we could get kids to learn what the, the right actions are to kind of cut back the sharing of the images um, and make some better moral decisions, that would be great. If we could get people to be aware of their on- online actions and learn how to advocate for others, it would be a better better world online for everyone. You'd mentioned um, the child bringing this to a person of an, an authority mm-hmm. to put a stop to it. So would that be a parent or police officer? So what would be that? And then what would be that adult's responsibility? So I think for, for a child, the, the typical responses are either going to be a parent or a school official. Once they go to them, it's, it's a little bit different. The parent has a decision to make about how they're going to move forward. Um, my recommendation would be to probably go to the parent of the person who the image is from or the person who they received it from. When they go to a school official, the school official has stronger legal responsibility to let the police know, uh, especially in public schools. So a lot of administrators will tell me that when they run into this problem, they will take the device, they will not look at the image, and they'll put it down and they'll simply call the police and, and hand it over to the police mm-hmm. to investigate. It is handled differently in every city, state, across the country, depending on how well resourced the police are, how well trained they are in cyber detection. So it just, it's sort of, it's a case by case on how it's handled. You mentioned that sexting is a form of cyberbullying, and I, I get that. What other forms of cyberbullying exist, and how can we help prevent them? Um, in, our, in our case curriculum, uh, with the middle schoolers, the first lesson is on cyberbullying. Mm-hmm. And what we do with the students is we walk through five types of cyberbullying. Not that kids need to be able to pinpoint the exact type of cyberbullying, but what what we're really trying to do is build their awareness um, and give them a platform to start identifying what's what. So the first one we talk about is harassment. So that would be a one-to-one, continual, unwanted connection with another person. Uh, the second one we talk about is deceiving, which is, is really an important part of cyberbullying, which is creating an account in someone else's name or likeness. And that one actually is illegal. It's called false impersonation. Mm. Kids often don't, you know, they they do a lot of stuff that they think are funny and some of it is illegal. So that's deceiving. The third one that they get really excited about is what they call flaming or roasting. So when someone is being roasted, it means they're being humiliated in a more of a public forum. Harassing is a one-to-one. Flaming or roasting is I say something with a large audience with the sole purpose of humiliating another person. The fourth one would be hate speech. That's probably the one that kids struggle to understand, but it's humiliating someone based on something they can't change. So gender, religion, race, size, understanding that when someone makes fun of that, they are essentially cyberbullying someone. And then finally, the, the, the last one that I think is so important to talk about middle schoolers about is exclusion. So that would be the idea of specifically singling out, excluding someone online 
in an effort to hurt them. So one of the important discussions to have with them is this, the natural progression of friendships. You know, you can have you can have a group of 10 people. Can you always invite 10 people over to your house? No. That's just the natural evolution of friendships. But what I want kids to start understanding is that what they post online is very visible. If Susie asks me to go out after school and I say no because I have a soccer game, but then I go out with Mary and Katie and I excluded Susie, when I start posting pictures online, there is, when I do that knowingly and hurtfully, that's exclusion and that is bullying. Mm -hmm. And what would be, were that to come to a parent attention or a school administrator's attention, what would be a next step in addressing those issues? Because it seems more covert and also a parent or a school administrator wouldn't necessarily have access to that. So if it comes to the the school's attention, the the question is how do you want to address it? Mm -hmm. You want to talk about technically, for lack of better terms, the bully or the target of the bullies. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I think is really important is, and you'll notice my terminology, I said the target of the bully. Mm -hmm. I don't say victim. We don't like to use the word victim anymore because the word victim implies powerlessness and that someone has to take it. If you're a victim, there's nothing you can do. And one message I get to the students is that you always have choices. You always have choices, Um, even as a target of the bullying. And what I outline to the students are, what are your choices? And I I talk to them as as if you are being bullied, but I also want to talk to, this is something we do in the curriculum, is I want to talk to all the kids, not just as who's being bullied, but what if this is your friend? How can you advise your friend to address the situation? So the first thing, the most logical thing, is to remove yourself from the situation, which is something that kids don't realize is an option. In face-to-face interaction, it's very logical. If we sit together at lunch every day and you're mean to me, tomorrow I think I might sit somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I might go away from it. If I'm not here, you're not going to make me feel bad. So online, maybe the situation is a group chat. There's 10 girls in the group chat. Annie, you, for some reason, have turned on me and you are, are harassing me. You're roasting me in front of this group continuously. It is making me feel sad, upset. Um, I don't want to come to school. Maybe I've started engaging in Mm self-harm. The first thing I would tell a student is get off the group chat. And believe it or not, students look at me and say, really? Go away from that place that is causing you pain. Um, The second thing I advise them to do is to go to an adult. The perception is that adults will make the situation worse, that they will be the target of more bullying because they were a snitch, um, whatever that might be. One thing I explained to them is that oftentimes you go to an adult and you simply need a place, a safe place to talk about it. Oftentimes the adult might have some suggestions to make the situation better, but yet doesn't make it known to everyone that you sought help. And then third, I tell them is, You all think you'll make it worse, but if someone is truly being bullied and they feel sad and upset and they've started hurting themselves, what does worse really mean? Mm -hmm. It may not change, but you are taking the opportunity to make it better. 
When you talk to kids that have truly been bullied online, they will tell you to be left alone is better than continuing the bullying. To be alone. Finally, I offer them some technical options. Um, Block and report Mm -hmm. where it's happening and always take screenshots. Screenshots provide the evidence for what's happening online so that if you do go to an adult and it needs to be addressed, um, there is very solid indication of who is saying what online and it doesn't become a case of he said or she said. The other thing that I think is important that I've seen some schools do really well is start creating some empathy programs for kids. Kids at this age struggle to think beyond themselves and how something affects them. And if we can create programming that helps them develop the skills to understand what someone else is feeling, if I can understand that you feel lonely because you're making fun of, being made fun of, Mm -hmm. maybe I as a bystander, if I understand how you feel, it gives me a better toolkit to be able to help my friend. Mm -hmm. She feels lonely, so I'm going to stand by your side. Be an upstander. Be an upstander. Language we use here. Mm -hmm. And that's language I'll use with them today as well. And being an upstander can come in a lot of forms. I think traditionally we've thought of an upstander as someone who stands up to a bully. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very unrealistic expectation for about 95% of our population to have. And with with technology, there's lots of other ways kids can support their friends without having to address a bully. They can figure out a method that works for their particular personality. If I'm a shy person and I don't want to I don't want to say anything in a group chat, I can send you a private message. Will that make you feel better, less alone? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As part of this case curriculum that you've developed, do you have a segment on overexposure? Can you speak to that as well for our audience? So I think overexposure just to technology, gaming, internet, When we talk about overexposure, I have the kids define it as Mm -hmm. putting too much of themselves online. Mm -hmm. And what we really talk about is what are the components of your online reputation, which are the pictures you post, the comments you make, the language that you use. So we, we talk about those components. We talk about three principles of overexposure, which is what goes up stays up. There's permanency to what they do online. Um, The second one is that everything you do online creates your online reputation, which we've talked about. And then finally, helping them understand that this is all part of your future. Through a lot of stories and activities and videos, we give them example after example of what overexposure means. So it's very broad um, when we start, but we really try and drill it down to that idea of permanency, privacy, and reputation. I know for some of our families listening, I will soon ask you the question because I got asked the question, when is the right age to give my child a phone? I'm not going to ask you that yet, but I think before a child receives a phone, they have access to various games. So can you speak to the various games that kids play and um, risks that are involved? So the game, the gaming world is, is complex, and I can tell you that I, it, it is not linked to having a phone. It's linked to having access to Wi-Fi. I have plenty of first graders tell me that they're playing Roblox. Roblox tends to be the the most popular game with really young elementary school kids. Um, You start seeing some Minecraft in there. Minecraft is a game that they can play either on their own, which is actually a great game because it really 
stimulates the creative use of their brain and the planning function. They can also play Minecraft on a closed server so they can play with other people that they know. Um, and then finally, the third option is to play Minecraft on an open server, which then opens them up to the general public. A year ago, I would tell you the biggest and most popular game out there that makes kids totally crazy is Fortnite. Mm -hmm. um, th that seems to have calmed down a bit. There's still a lot of Fortnite going on, but it is happening across all ages. The, the biggest challenges with gaming is the public forum, so when kids are playing Roblox, they the messaging, the in-app messaging that's available to predators to contact kids, connect with them, build a relationship as we've already talked about. The other big concern with gaming is just addiction. So there's research that shows that our brain reacts when, when kids are gaming that have a propensity to addiction, their brain releases chemicals that makes them feel good. And, and wants them to play more. When I work with students, you'll find there are students that say, yes, I game for an hour and I put it down and I move on. And then there's other students that tell me that they don't know when to stop and that when they stop, they don't feel good. And when they stop, there's nothing else that feels good. And that is definitely indication of a child who is addicted to gaming. So as a parent, I would ask them to look at can your kids regulate themselves? When they get off the game, do they have trouble regulating back to the general population? Are they aggressive? Are they angry? Are they frustrated? Can they engage in activities that are normal, like reading a book, playing with other people, or does it take some adjustment for them on that part? So those are some of the big things with gaming. You had shared um, in the earlier parent presentation about building in curfews and having gaming and open spaces that mm -hmm. parents can monitor. And then some of the games, if a child engages later at night, they become more, the games themselves can become more aggressive. So maybe not the use of headsets um, for some of these games. Do you want to speak more to that? Sure. I, I have a list of... Um, I call them quick hits for parents, things that they can be aware of that will increase the safety of their, their kids online. Um, first of all, as with um, social media apps, parents have to understand where their kids are spending their time, what games they're playing. Um, they need to understand that Call of Duty is a 17 plus game. And when you have your eight year old playing it, there's, there's concerns there. So understand the age ratings, um, understand why the age ratings are in place, what the dangers are for them. Couple places you can get that is if they're downloading it from an app store, the first level of information you can always get is go to the app store and search on it. That'll mm -hmm. give you the age requirements, it'll give you a high level review of why the game is rated what it is. If you want more information on that game, go to a place like Common Sense Media that has very thorough reviews of games. They have reviews by parents, they have reviews by students, they have reviews by Common Sense Media experts. And then finally, you can always Google it. I do a lot of that. What are the dangers of Roblox? Mm -hmm. Is Roblox safe for kids? The information online is really, really helpful. So understand the games. Make sure you have in-app purchases turned off on the device and within the game so that kids are not able to purchase additional things. I've had a lot of parents that come to me with over $1,000 credit card bills that they had no knowledge, the kid, and the kids really had no knowledge 
that they were buying Mm -hmm. coins and skins and all that stuff. As you mentioned, I think that keeping the gaming units in common areas of the house, treat it just like a computer. All those things we tell you, don't let kids have computers in their rooms, don't let them have gaming devices in their rooms. As much as it would be great to banish that Xbox to the basement and all the 14-year-old boys that come with it, keep it in your family room. Just the fact that it's in the main traffic areas of the house provide another level of security kids have to go through before they they make a poor decision. So in regards to the phone, (laughs) in your opinion, what is the right age to give a child a phone and what rules or boundaries should be put in place and enforced by parents when they decide to give their child that responsibility? So the most important part of that question that you asked is not what age Mm -hmm. you should give it. Unfortunately, I'm not going to give you an age. The part of that question that I thought was so critical is what rules and boundaries Mm -hmm. is a parent going to put in place? So let's talk about the age first. I, I really don't give an age because this is a family, personal parenting decision. And there's a lot of factors that go into why you give your child a phone. So you have to be honest about why you're giving your child a phone. Is it because they are taking a bus or a subway to school and you want to know, you want to maybe use the um, Life360 to know where they are at physically, you want to be able to communicate with them. In fairness to this world, there are not pay phones out there. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid growing up, if I wanted to get in touch with my parents, even if I didn't have a dime, I could make a collect call. I don't know how I would make a phone call on a public phone anymore. (laughs) I don't know where there is a public phone. Families definitely have some needs from a safety perspective, so that's why I don't give an age for that. There there are plenty of families that have held off till eighth grade graduation and kids have done well, but I think the important part is that when you do decide that it's time for your child to have a, a device like a phone, I highly, highly encourage you to sit down do a family, what I call digital roadmap, sit down and make some decisions before you give them that phone about how you're gonna manage the phone, Um, the decision makers in the house, mom and dad, dad and dad, mom and mom, whatever it might be, talk through what the issues are. What kind of phone are they gonna get? What are the responsibilities? What happens when our child violates one of the rules we've put in? What's the punishment? How much phone time do they have? Are we going to use monitoring software? Where does the phone get turned in at night? Is the phone going to get turned in at night? Can they keep it in their bedroom? Can they go in the basement with their phones? What will we do when our son has five friends over? Will we take the phones or not? Will they be allowed to have them? I could give you questions forever. But think through some of those. And then the other thing I would strongly suggest is coming up. This is a great opportunity to lay out those boundaries with your child. Come up with a contract. I have lots of contracts I'm happy to share with people. And it's not so much that you're trying to tie your kid to a contract, but it becomes a tool for conversation. And it becomes a a kind of a third party thing that your kid can look at and not have to look right at you. And you can have a conversation about where does the phone go? What time do you bring it in? And I can guarantee you if that child really wants a phone, before you buy that phone, They are very agreeable to the terms and conditions, which if I can add one more thing to that, I am not a big proponent of giving your child a phone as a gift. Because when you give them a gift, you typically want it to be a surprise. 
and it prevents you from having really solid, good conversation about the rules and limits of that phone mm-hmm. before they get it. Mm-hmm. And once you give it to them, like on Christmas morning, you, you really, as parents, we don't want to give them a phone on Christmas morning <laughs> and then say, let's talk about the rules. So we say, you know what? Let them have it today. We'll talk about it tomorrow. And then December 26th comes and we all have a little Christmas hangover. And so we don't talk to them about it. And before we know it, they've had that phone in their hands, totally operating with no rules or limits. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to try and impose limits on them. You certainly can do it, but it's much more difficult Mm -hmm. than if you said up front, hey, before I even agree to get you a phone, here's, here are my conditions of it. What do you think? You've spoken to multiple student and parent audiences throughout the country. Um, what is the one takeaway you hope children and parents learn and implement from your passion of educating about cyber safety and security? Oh, if I had one phrase that I think would help all of us, I would say pause before you post. If we could all, and I'm not... I mean, certainly children, but us adults as well. If we could pause before we hit enter, post, whatever it might be, and just give our brains a chance to engage, we would all make better decisions. Whether it's what we're posting, what we're saying, the language that we're using to another person, or even pausing when I'm, when I'm reading what someone else is saying to another person and asking myself, is there something I can do to make this place better? So I I think, you know, my goal is always, I'm an optimistic person. I'm a lover of life. And I want want everyone to enjoy it, but I'd love to see more positivity out there. And I just, I think if we just allowed our, I think our brains do want to work in that way if we allow them the space to do it. I I think students at the age that they are at are impulsive Mm -hmm. by development. And then we give them devices that key on that impulsivity So if we can give them the tools, um, whether it's a a phrase, a practice, a challenge to pause, that we would get an improvement in what they're doing online. So Liz, how would any of our listeners get in contact with you? Should they want you to come speak at their school or parish or to help them with their own family um, use of digital? Even if they don't want to, um, well, I would love for them to engage me, but go to cybersafetyconsulting.com, www.cybersafetyconsulting.com. I have lots of articles on there. It's a great resource. And then all my contact information is on there as well. You can always send an email to info at cybersafety.com, and that will come right to me. Well, thank you so much for appearing on the Heart of Sheridan Road podcast and for being with us literally all day today at, at Sacred Heart Schools. We're it's very it's fortunate to have you. So this is Anne-Marie Turpak with Liz Repkin of Cyber Safety Consulting. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to keep an ear out for our next podcast. 